see you here uh, today. Uh, last week, as Mary Kay said, uh, we started a two-week series on David and Goliath. And so last week, I gave the first part of what's kind of like one long sermon. And uh, this morning, I want to give uh, the second part. And uh, if you were not able to uh, be here last week, let me give you just a brief review of the part of the story that we thought uh, about then. It has been a very trying time in the history of Israel. The country has been at war with the Philistines, and the headline of every newspaper reads, there's a giant in the Valley of Elah. And if you read past the headline into the article, you'll discover that he's not the friendly kind. Uh, his name is Goliath, and with his size and his strength and his weaponry and his attitude, he stands like an ogre in the center of this valley. Now, Goliath has been spewing curses and insults and threats against Israel for 40 days, and he has challenged them to settle the war through something called uh, representative combat. That is, he'd like someone to fight him one-on-one, on one, and the losing group would become the slaves of the winning group. And so as you read the story, you, you, you just sense and feel that the air there is heavy with tension and with fear, especially on the side of Israel, and there's great consequence to what is happening because Israel has no one to represent them. The man who is most equipped and responsible to fight uh, Goliath, the king, won't do it. And the rest of the troops, in, in spite of being bribed with fabulous gifts and prizes by the king, they choose not to do it. Uh, Goliath is simply too powerful, and every single one of those men know that they do not stand a chance. And so the stage is set. For God to do what only God can do, to rescue and to save. And that rescue is going to come in just the nick of time in a way that no one there ever would have imagined or expected. Rescue is going to come from a little town named Bethlehem. A father named Jesse is going to send his son, David, to the valley of Elah. And while the king and his men cower, Jesse's son is going to turn what should have been tragedy into a triumph. Now, for the sake of time uh, this morning, and, and because I want to go on a real, into a specific direction, I'm not going to delve into all of the particulars of the story, but I do want to note just three details from um, the text, uh, particularly m most of which Mary Kay read uh, for us this morning. And the first thing that I want to, to note is, is the contrast in attitudes that we have in this story. I don't mean so much between David and Goliath, but between David and uh, the king of Israel and his troops. The king of Israel and his armies, as you read this story, you realize that they've pretty much surrendered to Goliath. But David is fired up with this kind of holy outrage and, and you can feel the distinction between, as one person who uh, commentated on this passage uh, called the soldier's resignation versus David's indignation. 
Uh, if you look at uh, the passage throughout it, the men of Israel are doing absolutely everything they can do to get away from Goliath as quickly as they can, while David is doing absolutely everything he can do to get at Goliath as quick as he can. Uh, the men in, in verse 25 say that Goliath is defining, defying Israel, meaning Goliath is insulting us. But David, in verse 26, says he's, he defies the armies of the living God, meaning he is insulting God himself. Uh, David's heart is filled with this sort of righteous fire to defend the honor and the integrity of God, and you see it throughout the passage. Second thing I'll note, this is just kind of interesting to me, but uh, it, King Saul is up to his old tricks again. Talked a little bit about him last week, but after David convinces him by kind of giving him his resume as a shepherd boy that he is qualified to fight Goliath, Saul clothes David in his armor and with his uh, helmet and also his sword. And that might appear to be a very thoughtful, generous, unselfish thing that King Saul does, unless you know that it was believed that during that time period that wearing the clothing of another person would infuse you with their spirit. And so it's very possible that Saul gave David his armor and his weapons so that should David be victorious, the victory would also be connected with Saul, right? He wouldn't be seen as, as such a weakling himself. But of course, we know the story. The armor was too big for David. So Saul uh, tries to steal some of the glory, but God refuses to share. And then finally, the, the third thing, the confrontation between David and Goliath, there's a lot of great moments in the Bible and the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament, but this is one of the greatest. And it's not the greatest moment. The cross is the greatest moment. Maybe the resurrection, even better. But uh, this is certainly right up there. Uh, David shows up on the battlefield. He comes down his side of the mountain to meet Goliath in the center. And can you imagine the look on Goliath's face when he sees David? Goliath thinks, you guys, Israel, you've had 40 days to come up with somebody, and this is all you've got. You, you've just got this little boy. And verse 42 says that uh, Goliath looks at David with disdain, which which means a kind of contempt. He looks at him and, and he says, you are not worthy to even be standing out here on this battlefield uh, with me. And Goliath sees the wooden staff that David has in his hands and he makes his, the very last wise crack of his life, Goliath, Goliath makes. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, right? Like, you think I'm a dog and you're gonna beat me with this stick that you've got, David? He says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And what he means by that is that when he's done with David, he says he's not even going to show him the dignity of uh, burial. He's just going to leave him for the birds to eat and, and the dogs to take care of. Now, David's response to Goliath is absolutely electrifying. I mean, if you feel the tension and the weight on the battlefield, then David's speech is incredible. Hollywood has treated us to some great battle speeches, right? Gladiator's got a really good one where Maximus stands up to the emperor in the Colosseum, and you listen to that speech. I used to listen to that every once in a while if I wanted to get fired up. I, I, I loved that uh, speech. But I have to tell you, 
This speech stands far and away above all of them. Because David, who once fought and defeated a bear, now becomes as fierce as one. And the same David that once struck down a lion, he roars at Goliath like one. Look at this speech again. We've got to read it twice because it's such a great speech. Verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And most of us are aware of, of what happens uh, after that. Goliath is probably distracted by David's uh, staff. He thinks he's going to use that as the weapon. Doesn't realize that he also has five smooth stones and a sling. Goliath, uh, David slings a stone. It knocks Goliath into the, the skull. And uh, probably what happens is he's stunned by the stone. He's knocked out and he, he falls to the ground unconscious. And then before he's able to recover, David runs over, he grabs Goliath's own sword, this great scimitar, and he chops off his head and he finishes him off, making good on his promise. And the champion of the Philistines is defeated and the people are saved. Now, this could be seen as the greatest upset in all of military history. But the truth is, Goliath was way out of his league. That's true for anyone who would ever challenge God because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Goliath was no problem for God. Now, the question that I want to think about this morning is this. What should we do with the story of David and Goliath? How should we apply it? How should we think about it? What should we learn uh, from the story? Well, I went to a conference um, years ago. I took students, I took some high school students to the conference. And uh, the theme of the conference was really based on the story of David and Goliath. Uh, the theme was five smooth stones. And everybody got a t-shirt that said five smooth stones on it. A really cheap t-shirt, uh, I might add, by the way. And the, the first night, the speaker talked about uh, the different giants that students face in their life and how David is an example to us of what we ought to be and do in light of those giants. And kind of the big idea was that if we just seek to imitate the courage and the faith of David, then we can overcome the obstacles in our lives just like he overcame the obstacle in his too. Now, in many ways, this is true, and this is a good theme. Uh, David is an incredible example of many things in the story of leadership and courage and valor. And we should learn those things from him. That's not illegitimate in any way. The question that I want to think about is, is it really realistic to think that we can overcome every obstacle that we face in life? Is, is it, is it uh, realistic to think that every problem that we have, if we can just figure out how to have 
the right kind of faith and the right kind of courage, then we can overcome it as well. And if we can't, what does that mean for us? If we can't do it, what does that mean? So I want to think a little bit about that this morning. And I, I think there might be something more to the story of David and Goliath than, than maybe was referenced at that conference that I went to years ago. I read an article a little while ago that was uh, written about a man whose name is Samuel Johnson. Some of you might uh, know of him. He, he was a very famous uh, figure in English literature in the 18th century, and he was also a very dedicated Christian. Um, he kept a prayer journal, and he wrote in it over years and years and years. And um, the person that wrote this article that I read kind of cataloged the things that uh, Samuel Johnson had written in this journal over the years that described his struggle uh, to get up early in the morning to pray. And so I wanted to read you just some, some pieces from his journal. This, this was in 1738, the year he, he wrote, O oh Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Then in uh, 1757, which was 19 years later, he writes, O oh mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. 1759, two years later, enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. 1761, I have resolved until I have resolved that I am afraid to resolve again. 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and to rise early. 1764, this is five months later. He resolves to rise early, quote, not later than six if I can. 1765, I purpose to rise at eight because... <laughs> Though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often rise, or for I often lie until two. <laughs> 1769, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight, and by degree, at six. 1775, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have, year after year, been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. And he resolves again to rise at eight. <laughs> Finally, 1781, and this is three years before his death, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. And he resolves to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. Now, the person who uh, wrote this article commented on this, and they wrote, I love the never-quit effort of Johnson. What he chronicles sounds so much like me over the years. Try and fail. Fail, then try. Try and succeed. Succeed, then fail. Two steps forward, one step back. One step forward, three steps back. Every year, I get better at some things, and worse at others. Can you relate to that? I mean, here you've got a guy, Samuel Johnson, who is trying so hard to be like David, but he's just not making the, the kind of progress on it that he would hope 
or want. You ever feel that way in life? I, uh, one thing that I realized about myself really early on in life is that I'm very far from perfect. And I, I don't mean that to say like I'm failing at every single thing in life, but I do know that there are huge ways that I can improve as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. In, in every single role that I have in life, I could list for you, if, if you all had the time and, and wanted to hang out for a while, I could list for you big ways that I need to improve and things that I'm working on but, but sometimes feel like progress is much slower than I like. And, and while I know that I can make progress in life, thanks to the, the grace of God and his, his willingness to hang, hang with me in my uh, weaknesses, I'm also realistic enough to know that I'm never going to arrive in this lifetime. And as much as I would like to say that maybe one day when I'm 80 years old, then I'll be like David, I'm guessing that I'm never going to feel that way. And I'd imagine that you, if you're honest, feel that way about yourself as well. Well, I think the story of David and Goliath, it not only gives us a target to aim for, right? A person to, to be like, be like David. It also gives us incredible hope and encouragement when we aren't in, in that struggle. The story of David and Goliath is an incredibly uh, encouraging story for imperfect people like you and me. Think about this for just a second. If the story of David and Goliath, like kind of the application or the message, is restricted or limited just to the idea that we should be like David and conquer our giants in life, it's possibly a little bit of a discouraging story, isn't it? Because there's some giants in life that we face that we just can't seem to overcome. And if that's the limited application, then we've all got such a long ways to go and such a tremendous amount of work to do. But maybe the story of David and Goliath is not primarily about us being more like David. Maybe it's about us needing somebody like David. Maybe the story of David and Goliath isn't primarily about us being more like David. Maybe it's about us needing someone like David. Someone who can do and be for us the thing that we can't seem to be and do ourselves. And maybe in the story, though we're all inclined to kind of want to relate to David and want to be the hero who, who uh, slays all of our giants in life, maybe we're meant to relate a little more to Saul and all the troops of Israel. People who just couldn't do it and they needed someone who was better and stronger than them to represent them. The account of David and Goliath is a story about salvation for broken people. The broken people are Saul and the armies of Israel. And, and I really believe that, that even though David does serve as a great example, the main idea of the story is to orient ourselves towards the gospel. Now, the gospel is the main message of the Bible. And the heartbeat and the lifeblood of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. The entire storyline of the Bible revolves around Jesus. 
And in the New Testament, most of us would realize that, that, that it's pretty obvious, right? We, we began the New Testament with four books that are accounts of the life of Jesus. And then the rest of the New uh, Testament, he's still the central focus. They all look at his life. But this is just as true in the Old Testament as well. One of the reasons that we know that is that Jesus taught that himself. You, you can look this up if you would want to. Uh, the book of John, chapter 5 Verse 29 through 40, Jesus talks about this. And Luke 24, verse 27, which I think Tom might, I don't want to make promises, but I think he's thinking about speaking on this, this passage next week. Jesus teaches in both of those places that the Old Testament is primarily about him. So he's the big idea in the New Testament. He's also the big idea in the whole Testament. Jesus is the lifeblood of the entire Bible. And so in the Old Testament, what we see is we see hints and shadows and silhouettes of Jesus everywhere. Maybe you've gone to meet a friend at a restaurant at some point, and uh, you go and you sit down. You get there a little early, and you're facing the window like I am here, and it's a bright day, and the sun is shining in, and the person that you're meeting with comes and, and sits with you, and uh, I, you always want them to kind of close the shade, right? Because you, you can't see your friend anymore. The, the sun kind of puts them into a shadow, and so the details of who they are are, are kind of uh, covered. You, you can't make out all of their features, but you still understand that it's your friend. That's what much of the Old Testament is like. Uh, and the life of David in the Old Testament, and, and here, even in his victory against Goliath, it's like a little taste. It's a little foreshadowing of something that Jesus would do later. It, it's a picture of a similar but much greater victory, and that is Christ's defeat of sin and Satan and death. Now, let me um, show you what I, what I mean by that. If you have a Bible, if you could turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. I didn't write the page down. Maybe somebody could tell us what the page is in uh, the black covered Bibles around you. Colossians chapter 2. 984? Thanks, Sarah. 984. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. Now, the Bible, this passage that we're going to look at, the Bible doesn't connect it to the story of David and Goliath, okay? So, so there's not a direct connection that's made. But I just want you to note kind of how similar in some ways the, the, the passage is here with the story of David and Goliath. And, and Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, this is a wonderful, wonderful passage of such hope and help. So let's read it together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, there's a lot to this. This would be a good passage to do a, a sermon or two or three on. Uh, but I want to just share with you three things that we draw out of this passage. They're not the only things, but they're three important things. The first is this. 
we are told in this passage that we have an extremely serious problem. That every one of us naturally has what, what the passage calls here a record of debt against us. Now, you might imagine, if you, if you want to put an image to it in your mind, kind of like a great big ring binder with thousands and thousands of pages. And on, on those pages, in tiny uh, print, it, it details all the wrong things that we've done in life. And not only that, but all of the right things that we've failed to do in life. And, and this is the evidence uh, against us, which is so glaringly obvious that no one can... Uh, refute proving that all of us are sinners, everyone, that none of us has done the things that God require of us. And, and pictured here in this passage are rulers and authorities who are acquainted with our record of debt. They, they understand that there are things against us in uh, this binder, and these rulers and authorities would love nothing more than to use the record of debt against us. These are uh, demonic forces with, their, with Satan as their chief. Now, one thing that's interesting about Satan in the Bible, most people think of him as being the tempter, and he is the tempter. I mean, that is one of the things that he, that he uh, does, and that's one of the things that he's called. But he also goes by another title, and the title is The Accuser. And in many ways, the title of accuser is much more terrifying than the, the title of tempter because accusing us is not difficult at all. All he needs to do is point to the record of debt. It's all there on paper. It's all known. And so Satan, you might picture, he, he stands before us like Goliath. I mean, so big and powerful and strong, and he's using our own record of debt against us. And in that sense, we are as paralyzed and helpless and hopeless as the men on the battlefield in the valley of Elah. That's, that's one of the first things that this passage tells us. The second thing it tells us is this. It tells us that like David... Jesus stands as our representative. And that, like David, Jesus comes to face an enemy that we are too weak to ever face on our own. That on the cross, Jesus stood up for us with that same kind of courage and value, and he took all of the guilt and humiliation and reproach and shame of every single line in our record of debt on himself so that not one single letter of one single word of one single sentence of any of those pages remains. On the cross, Jesus bears the weight of our sin and debt. And that's why it says that God makes us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. The third thing is this, that Jesus' perfect payment for our record of debt cancels it. And what that means is tremendous. It means that it cannot be held against us anymore. All the things we've done and shouldn't have done 
and all the things we should have done but didn't do are not held on our account anymore. And what this does, the passage says, is it disarms every ruler and every authority. And so now Satan, the accuser, can accuse us all day and all night as forcefully as he likes. But the thing is this, he's got no claim against us. There's no debt there anymore to hold against us. He, he can only bark, but he's got no teeth. That like Goliath, he has been defeated from the son from Bethlehem. Now, what does this, this mean for us? Uh, this means incredible things. It means for us the same thing that it meant for Saul and his troops, that God has rescued us from our enemy and we are free. And, and I want you to, to look back for just a second at, at how the men of Israel were impacted by uh, the death of their enemy, Goliath. If, if you still maybe have um, that page, if you can look back in, in 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 17, look at the end of verse uh, 51. I want you to uh, imagine as we read this what it would have been like to have been uh, these men. It says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, right? So the bad guys get out of there. And the men of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and beyond. And so what you've got here is, is you've got what must have been the most wonderful sound in all the world. You've, you've got all the men of Israel uh, shouting in victory. And, and I, don't, I don't know if they shouted something that was all the same. I would guess that it was just this spontaneous, surprising cry of joy and relief. That's uh, even hard for us to imagine. I mean, for them, in the time that it took David's rock to shoot from his sling to hit Goliath on his head, on his head, these men had gone from slavery now to freedom. I mean, these men knew that they were dead men and that perhaps even their families were dead. And then in just a moment, they're men who live. And their resignation, which you just feel, their sense of defeat, which you feel the entire passage all of a sudden, in just that split second, it, it becomes celebration. And suddenly, what do they do? They charge forward with newfound joy and power and courage. And this should be the same response that the children of God have as well to God's rescuing work in our lives. This should produce for us the same sort of allegiance and devotion, and obedience, and confidence that like the men of Israel, we too would have the courage in life to charge forward. Now, being saved and, and rescued from our sin, it, it, it doesn't mean that all of our problems go away, does it? I mean, most of us know this, especially in our culture today, um, being a Christian makes life more difficult, not less. A lot of times it makes things harder, not easier. A lot of times it, it, it creates new obstacles for us. It doesn't take all of them away. 
at least not yet. Do you know what this does mean for us? That even though our problems in life don't go away, it does mean for us that we don't have to be afraid of them anymore. It's one of the primary things that it changes because we too, just like the men of Israel, have a champion like David. And in spite of all of our shortcomings, and we have so many, in spite of our flaws and our failures, Jesus stood up for us against an undefeatable enemy, and he defeated him. Jesus has won our victory. The Bible tells us that he has sealed our destiny forever, and that for his own children, for those who have trusted him to pay that record of debt, who has asked him to to forgive uh, his victory against Satan, sin, death, all, all the big giants out there that are against us, is not just his victory, it becomes ours too. And so what Christians can do is, is we can sing the same song in the Psalms that King David wrote. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I hope this morning that you will fear no one. That you will fear nothing. And I hope that you will trust in the champion, Jesus, who defeats giants. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for all that you've done. We know it must have been so painful and hard for you to send your son Jesus to the cross to suffer and die in our place, but we thank you that you did. Thank you for his strength and his integrity and his love for each person who stands with a record of debt against them. We thank you that he was the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, that he did the thing that no one of us could ever do, that he is our champion. And we pray that we might give you the honor and the glory that you might set our hearts on fire as you did David's. Thank you that you have done this wonderful thing. And we pray that you would give us courage to strive forward in strength. In Jesus' name. Thank you.